0: After hearing worship like that, it's like, man, we should just keep, keep going. Um, it's a privilege to be here this morning um, in front of you all. Usually when I'm here in front of everyone, it's giving a stocking update, something about the city, this and that. So in lieu of that, I feel like I need to keep that tradition going because since I have the platform here, I can kind of talk about whatever I want. So anyway... We are having our uniform drive coming up the next two weeks for stocking. So the 6th and the 13th, we will have shopping carts in the back there, and we are going to be collecting uniforms for students at stocking. We are looking for si- pants size 6 to 12, boys or girls, khaki pants. They can be black or khaki, and dress shirts, white, navy blue, blue, any color of blue, I think, black, red, I think I said white. But anyway, so you can get those at Meyer or Target, Goodwill, Salvation Army, whatnot. And I just want to say you all blessed this community so much over there. Last year, we just had awesome people come in and get involved and engaged and give uniforms. And we actually had a closet for kids when they weren't able to come to school because they, had a, they didn't have their uniform or it got ripped or torn or whatever. We have a closet where you could say, hey, don't let this stop you from coming to school. You have a uniform here waiting for you. And so that really helps teachers. It helps the morale of the students as well. So we're going to be doing that the next two weeks um, and love for you to participate. We're also, Rebecca here, she is taking over the mentorship program at Stocking. We're going to be looking for more mentors coming up in the next couple weeks as well. So you might be saying, Who is this guy? What do you do here? What's your role? Whatever. My name is Jeremiah. Um, I'm on staff here at Crossroads. I was the, heading up this relationship that we have with Stocking Elementary, but with Brad and Ken, kind of doing that church plant, I am now stepping into the role of city focus director. So, I'll be kind of overseeing what is it that we are doing as a community to engage the city, to be a part of the work that God is doing here in Grand Rapids. Um, so, all that to say, I'm a rookie up here, so bear with me. I've gone through this like five times probably, and every time it's a little different, so I really don't know what you're going to get. I don't even know what you're going to get, so, but I hope you're okay with that. I hope that you're okay just to say, all right, let's just go for this together, and my background, I'm a social worker, so for me, a monologue is like, no, let, let's, let's just you and I sit and talk and work <laughs> through your problems, so I might have to work through some issues up here by myself, so, um, but anyway part of what i want to do as well i'm not i don't know the hebrew the greek and you know the lexicon for this and that or whatever but my heart as well as being up here is to portray who jesus is who we are in him and how we can go forth and be his messengers in the world i want to share some vision today of what i'm dreaming about what i'm praying about what we're talking about even at crossroads as far as what does it look like for us to engage the city so all that to say today we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew is a book about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. We're going to look at Matthew 16, 13 through 20. It's on page 797 if you have a blue Bible like mine. So this this summer we've been looking at the Gospel in pictures and... It's been really cool, all the different metaphors and things that people have preached on and talked about and everything, and if anything, it just shows the awesomeness and greatness of God, how he displays himself in so many different ways and areas in our life. We could do this for years, literally, just preaching gospel in pictures. The thing that I want to look at today is peace into chaos. When I think of chaos, the dictionary says disorder and confusion, Peace, we've heard that before here, shalom, this idea of um, two entities having peace between each other. That can be man and God or even two countries or whatnot, the well-being or welfare of an individual or individuals. So with all that being said, let's go for it, all right? Let's stand for the reading of God's word, please, if you're able. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone he was the Messiah. It's God's word. You may be seated. So, even before we kind of enter into what's happening in this text here, I want to step back a little bit and look at the beginning part of this chapter in 16. Jesus, do you have that slide with the map on there? Jesus and his disciples are over in this area called Magadan. I'm probably pronouncing that totally wrong, but we'll just go with it. Um, and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they come up to him and they're testing him, saying, all right, Jesus, if you are who you are, show us a sign. We want to see a sign. Jesus says, no, no. I'm not going to show you a sign. A wicked, adulterous generation asks for a sign. The only sign you will see is the sign of the son of Jonah and the sign of Jonah. And the sign of Jonah is literally the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so Jesus and his disciples, they leave that area. They head up over to Bethsaida. They cross over. On their way to Bethsaida, the disciples are saying, or Jesus says, hey, be wary, be cautious of the yeast, the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the disciples are like, oh, Someone forgot to bring bread. That's what it's all about here. And Jesus is like, guys, are you kidding me? We just fed 4,000 people yesterday, and you're worried about bread? What are you thinking? He said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. And it says the disciples realized that Jesus was talking about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So they get to the other side, Bethsaida. And in that little triangle there, Chorazon, Capernaum, Bethsaida, that's where they did a lot of ministry. Jesus did a lot in that area. But now all of a sudden, Jesus just starts walking north, and I don't know how many of you have been been on these trips with Rod and Libby when they go to Israel, but the way of the rabbi is you walk, and you don't always know where you're going, so when we go with Rod and Libby, it's like, all right, get up, just start walking. You follow in the dust of the rabbi. You walk behind them, trusting where they're going to lead you to go, so I could see the disciples being like, all right, we're going north, Uh, Jesus... That's the, that's the turnoff for a Corazon over there. Like, shouldn't we be doing this? Where, where are we going? And they keep going. They keep going. They say it's about a 25-mile hike to Caesarea Philippi, which probably took about two days. And they get to Caesarea Philippi, and they're like, what are we doing here? And why would they say, what are we doing here? Let's put it in our context. Maybe it's say that, have you all seen our church bus out there, the, the new little church bus? Maybe Jesus gets 12 of you and says, all right, guys, let's hop in we're going to take a road trip. So, Jesus takes the wheel. It's a country uh, <laughs> country song. Maybe that's playing on the radio, too. Like, it's just really, really going for it. So, Jesus gets behind the wheel, maybe. Um, either way, it's a good place to be, probably. So, he starts driving. You're like, all right, where are we going? He gets down to Chicago. You're like, oh, maybe there's a conference here? Yeah, like some good worship thing we're going to. He keeps going. He goes to Des Moines. You're like, Jesus, where are we going? Who goes to Des Moines? But he keeps going to Omaha, and then he goes to Denver. You're like, this must be it. But then he goes, and he parks in the middle of downtown Las Vegas. Now, if any of you do want to take a road trip to Las Vegas, that actually is the right direction, so I can get you those after the service. So I did look it up. I Google mapped it. But anyway, he gets to downtown Las Vegas. And why would I compare Las Vegas with Caesarea Philippi? What's the nickname for Las Vegas? Sin City. Sin City. And again, if you go to Las Vegas, if you, I'm, not, I'm not judging you at all. Hear me? I'm not saying you're horrible for going there. I went there when I was younger. I just remember when I was there, there was all these leaflets and pamphlets and very sexualized things that were all out there. And it might have cleaned up since then. Anyway, doesn't matter about Las Vegas. We're moving on. We're in Choraz- or Caesarea Philippi. So anyway, Jesus brings his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, and it would be the sin city of their time. There was the worship of Pan God there. It used to be called Panias, Caesarea Philippi did. And Panias ended up becoming um, Caesarea Philippi when King Herod took it over. And the worship of Pan was just very dark. Pan is a half goat, half man God. You might have seen pictures of him, half goat on the bottom, half man on the top. He plays the Pan Pipes, I think they're called. So He's just very dark God. We get words like pandemonium from him and panic. And so Jesus takes his disciples here, and Jewish people don't go here because the worship of Pan is you're prostituting yourself with other people, prostituting yourself with goats. It is just a very dark, dark place. So in, in, in order to entice his worshipers, or the, to entice Pan to come up, they just... They operated in just such depravity. And so Jesus' disciples must be thinking, what are we doing here, Jesus? Why are we here? So in this place, Jesus starts to ask his disciples some questions. That first question is, who do you say that I am? What do they say? Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, which could be true. Anyway. Or one of the prophets. Now what the thing is, is two days earlier, they were just with these religious, religious teachers These, you know, scribes, these Pharisees. And Jesus was warning his disciples to be on guard against their teaching. Now they're in a place that probably doesn't even recognize Jesus. And why do you think this matters? Why? What's the point of this? And I think everything that Jesus does has a reason. It has a purpose behind it. And part of this thing is I believe that culture, whether it's our family culture, our religious culture, the worldly culture that maybe we've grown up in, it can have an effect on the way that we see Jesus Maybe you grew up in a religious home where it was all about you gotta keep the law, you gotta be perfect, you gotta try more, you gotta do better, you gotta not sin as much. Maybe you grew up in a home devoid of Jesus and had no concept of who he is, but that baggage that from our family culture or our religious culture can stick with us and give us tainted views of who Jesus is. Now, these are two very different religious cultures: the, the Pharisees and then Caesarea Philippi, the worshippers of Pan. But the thing that they have in common is they want God on their terms. They want him the way they want him to be. And what do I mean by that? The Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus, if you're the son of God, then show yourself. Show us a sign. If you really are the son of God, then come down from that cross. Prove yourself to me. They, he didn't come like they were expecting, like they were wanting. And as a result of that, they were saying, no, this, I'm not, you're, not, you're not operating on my terms. I don't believe in you. I don't follow you. Can we be the same way sometimes? God, if you give me a husband or a wife, then I'll trust you. I will trust that you are good. If you get me that good job, then I'll give you more of my time. You know, it's always, how many movies have you seen where it's just, God, if you save me from this circumstance, then I will serve you with the rest of my life. It's this conditional thing. We want God on our terms. It can be the other way. If I don't sin as much, then will you love me more? If I work harder, will you approve of me? It's all this transactional thing. It's on our own terms. The worshipers of Pan, the pagans, those of this world. We hear this all the time in our culture today. Whatever works for you. Hey, you want a little Jesus in there? That's great. Here's some Mohammed. Here's some Buddha, Confucius. Whatever brings you happiness. Whatever brings you contentment. Take those parts of Jesus that are good, that you like. Just feel free to throw out the rest. Whatever works best for you. Whatever brings you happiness. And it becomes this place of I want God the way that he makes me feel good about myself he makes me happy but those both of these have very disordered and confused views of who Jesus truly is I love that Jesus doesn't just dwell on this question who do other people say that I am and be like whoa guys they really think that about me Seriously? they think I'm John the Baptist like that doesn't even make sense are you kidding me they're not he's not all worried about that And saying, oh man, why don't these people get it? He goes right at the heart and looks to them and says, now what about you? Who do you say that I am? And I can imagine Jesus thinking, hey, you guys have been a part of this culture. You've been in religious culture. You've been in so many different places with me. You've been where the Pharisees have accused me of having a demon. You've been in those places of the Samaritan village, the places you aren't supposed to go. You've heard so many different opinions and thoughts about me. Now, who do you say that I am? You've been the tax collector. You've been the uh, zealot. You've been the doctor and the fisherman. Now, what about you? In all this culture, who do you profess me to be? And what does Peter say? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter cuts through all the religion and paganism and confesses truly who Jesus is. Who is this Jesus, though, the Messiah, the son of the living God? These are words from the Bible that describe who he is. He's the advocate, the bread of life, the bridegroom, the chief cornerstone, deliverer, faithful and true, the good shepherd, Emmanuel, God with us, indescribable gift, king of kings, lion of the tribe of Judah, lamb of God, mediator, Lord of all, mighty one, one who sets free, our hope, our peace, redeemer, risen Lord, the door, the way, the word, the victorious one. For those who have suffered and mourns, he's a man of sorrows that enters into our suffering. For those who have been hurt or rejected, he says, I will never leave you or never forsake you. For those who worry and fear, he says, fear not, for I am with you. For those who have, feel as though they need to keep trying, he says, come to me, come to me, and I will give you rest. For those who feel unloved, cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. I literally could go on, on and on describing who this Jesus is. And my question is, is do you know this Jesus? It's not do you know about him or do you know what other people think about him or even do you go to church enough? It's do you know this Jesus? He isn't into the religiosity or the ways of the world. He's into relationship with us, his people. But here's the thing. Once we start this relationship with Jesus and once we've been even in it for years, it isn't like, oh yeah, now I've got it. I've got it all figured out. Missy and I, we've been married, my wife, for 12 years now, and it wasn't like when we first got married, standing at the altar, we said the vows, and it was like, boom, a lightning bolt came, and I'm like, oh, I see you perfectly, like, I totally, I'm going to be a perfect husband, I know how to relate to you, everything, we've had a lot of chaos in our life, let me tell you, she probably wishes a lightning bolt would have struck, but maybe a different kind of <laughs> lightning bolt. bullet. Um, So that's the thing. It's like it takes time. We have those chaotic times in our marriage and our relationship where we see each other in a confused way and not the way that we are are to see each other. But we come together. We work through it. We say, this is who you are. This is who I am to you. And that's the same way it is with Jesus. Just because we confess him as Messiah doesn't mean all the other distorted views we have about him aren't still there. So I don't want to think it's like, oh, this perfection moment. How many Christian movies? Okay, No offense against Christian movies, but how many Christian movies at the end is it like someone's at the altar, they're like, oh, thank you, God. Yes, I receive you. And then it's like, boom, all their problems go away. Who can attest to that, huh? Okay, thank you, a few of you. But anyway, it's a relationship that we're learning and growing and deepening day by day by day. And again, here's the thing. Why do I say this? You guys, many of you have been going to Crossroads for years or maybe a year, whatever it is. This is elementary teaching. I know that. This, the way the people speak up here, it's awesome. They go deep and everything like that. And why do I say this? Is because we're human. Because it's good sometimes to reflect and just say, where am I at with you, Jesus? Who are you to me? Sometimes we don't even realize it in that little leaven starts to get in there in my relationship with Jesus. It starts to become more self-serving. What can Jesus offer me? What does he owe me? I look at my own life. Been involved in missions overseas, in Africa, many places, working at a church. Does that mean, oh man, I've got it all together. Yeah, I'm totally, I can do this. No, it doesn't mean my relationship with Jesus is solid at all. I still am aware of those times where I'm just thinking, man, I'm just doing this out of works. I'm just doing this because this is what I'm supposed to do. It's more religion than relationship, and it's something that we can easily fall into. And so when you ask yourself that question, who do you say Jesus is, it always brings us back to that place of who he is and what he has done, and less about us and who we are in him now. And as trivial and elementary as it might seem, this is the most important question we can probably ever answer in our lives today. And the thing is, if you, still have, if you know there's ways that you're feeling confusion and chaos with God, ask his spirit to show you. That's the thing. Peter confesses Jesus, and Jesus says, this wasn't you, Peter. This was by the spirit of God. In John 15, 26, it said, the spirit testifies to who Jesus is. Ask the spirit, show me those ways, show me those areas where I'm missing you, where I have distorted views of you, where I have chaotic views of you that are not true, and bring peace into those areas bring wholeness, completeness. It's a a working that God will continue to do over and over. I want to transition a little bit and say, now Peter confesses Jesus. He says this, and is this where it ends? This is obviously a powerful confession. He's confessing who Jesus is, and we need that. That's foundational in our faith. My question is, does it end there? Is that the end? Is it like you've arrived? Or is this just the beginning? Sometimes in my mind, I feel as though we think this confession is the end and now we're good to go. Um, I was in Kyrgyzstan, Central Asia, about, I don't even remember, 15 years ago. Sorry. And there was, it's a nominal Muslim country, very just, they'll take any kind of religious thing, very new agey, humanistic, and so, anyway, while we were there, there was a crusade that came through. And I don't even remember who it was. It was a big-name crusade person. They came through, and they did a crusade. And I remember seeing this Christian magazine, and there was this article saying, yes, 2,000 people, came. they confessed Jesus, they came to the altar, they came to know Jesus. And so, I saw this article, and I was like, wow, where'd this happen at? What changed? What changed? What happened? And so about six months after this crusade, they went and they asked the Christian leaders of the churches in this area, they said, wow, what happened here? Like, you had this powerful move of God. How much did the church grow by? They said, one person. And the whole thing is that sometimes, I'm not putting crusades down or anything like that, but when we just say, boom, you've confessed, now you're good to go, just, hey, whatever holds you in life, good luck, you'll figure it out. There's more to that. The question I want to ask you is when we confess who Jesus is, how then should we live? And I think that is a pivotal question as well that we need to answer. And I love this where Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Joseph, for this was not revealed to you by my flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And here's where it is, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome me. Now what is Jesus talking about here? There's different interpretations, and I think there's a few ways you can look at it, but I want to look at it from a very, I think this is a practical sense, but I think it's also a true sense. If you can show me again that slide of the temple there, Caesarea Philippi. So as you can see, the temple there, there's this, it's kind of built into that rock formation, and um, the temple on the left there is, there was this water source that came in there. They weren't quite sure where it came from, and they thought it was, kind of a gateway, like an abyss, that it went all the way down to the abyss or the underworld. And so it was this place that they worshipped Pan, and that's where they tried to get him to come up and you know do whatever they wanted him to do. That place was literally called the Gates of Hades. So when we look at this verse again, just imagine Jesus standing up on top of that ridge with his disciples, looking down over this temple area with his disciples and declaring, on this rock... I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. What I see Jesus is saying on the chaotic places, on the broken places, on the darkest places, that is where I want my people to go to build my church. He's preparing his disciples to enter into a world that is devoid of who he is, that is full of chaos, full of brokenness, full of just emptiness. And he's saying, go, this is where I want you to build my church. And how can I say this? I think there's examples of Jesus' life all over where he's doing this. Think of the gospel in in essence. What is it? It's Jesus coming down from heaven, a place of perfection, of peace, coming down, entering into the chaos of our world, living a life that we couldn't live and dying the death that we could not die for our good, for our peace, for him to bring his peace to our hearts. And I look at how Jesus walked with his disciples. Where did he take his disciples to? He didn't take them to just namby-pamby land. Where'd he go? He went to the Samaritan villages where Jewish people don't go. He touched a leper and the unclean. He casts out demons. He goes the other side of the lake and casts out demons in a demoniac. He brought his disciples into a crazy storm in the middle of the water and he calms it with one word. He's accused of being a drunkard and a glutton by the religious leaders because he's hanging out with the sinners and the tax collectors He defends an adulterer and said he does not condemn her, but he calls her to something more. He went to the home of Zacchaeus, a tax collector, and says, I'm going to eat with you tonight. He feeds 5,000 hungry people in one sitting. All throughout his life on earth, Jesus is taking his disciples to the broken, chaotic places of the world to bring his hope, to bring his wholeness, his peace, his shalom. And what do the disciples do when Jesus leaves? What is it that they do as well? What is their response the disciples didn't just confess Jesus as Lord and King, then go back to Bethsaida or go back to the places of comfort and security. Jesus, after he leaves, he says, now go to Jerusalem and wait, wait for that, the Holy Spirit to come. And I love that because I think the move of the Holy Spirit being poured out in Jerusalem is imperative, it's so important to the mission of God. And the Holy Spirit moves upon them, but he doesn't, and so many people are saved and it's not like, all right. Let's make a holy huddle now. let We got our church going. Let's keep going here. What does he do? He sends them out. He pushes them out to the broken areas of the world. Look at the disciples. Bartholomew, he was martyred in Armenia. He, it was a very pagan area. Andrew, he went to the western part of Greece and was martyred. Peter was crucified in Rome. James, the son of Zebedee, in Acts twelve two it says, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Most of these places that the disciples went to were places that they would never go to when they were growing up. It wasn't even in their vocabulary. So what does this mean for us? It's like, yeah, that's them. Am I saying you need to go across the world and get martyred and uh, that's the only way to serve Jesus? No, that's not it at all. not saying that's wrong by any means. But it's more about being faithful in the places that God has placed you and called you to be. Maybe the of Philippi's for us are going to the other side of our city and spending time with the poor and oppressed, maybe even moving in amongst them. Maybe the cesarea Philippi's for us are our neighborhoods or our workplaces, our child's school. Maybe it's in our sports league that you're a part of. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom and you meet other moms at the park. It can be anywhere. There's so much chaos and brokenness in our world. And in these places, as the disciples did, we can truly embody 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, which says, for Christ's love compels us. It's not because of us, but it's because of him and what he's done. His love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now, I hope you hear my heart behind this. I know many of you are stepping out into the broken, chaotic places in this world and in this city. This is not to be condemning and saying, you gotta be doing more. You're not doing enough. That's not my heart at all. If anything, it's continue on in this journey of following Jesus and being strong and sharing and embody the love and message of Jesus to this world. One of the things we talk about here at Crossroads is renewing the city. And part of that is we want to see the city renewed and transformed through the way that we live and share Jesus with this community. Now, it's been a joy to be a part of Crossroads. My wife and I have been apart for, since 2005, really, and we've been back and forth uh, many times. But it's been, I love the language. I love the things that are happening here. When we talk about being a 9010 church, when we talk about our street corner When we talk about, this this is the locker room. I know Rod loves that sports lingo. This is the locker room. We're getting fired up to go out. And if anything, as we move forward in talking about God renewing the city, I wanna be about championing, equipping, and empowering communities of people within here, people in this church, people here at Crossroads that are stepping into chaos together, loving each other, and loving the city, and confessing the name of Jesus. I wanna see us become a community of people that is stepping into areas that we feel called to. Stocking has been such a blessing to be a part of that relationship. It's been so fun these last two years to see this relationship develop between Stocking and Crossroads. Um, I love the people from this community that just give of their time, whether it's mentoring, serving, meals, whatever it is. It's been so beautiful to see, and it's blessed that community so much. On the other hand, the community at Stocking is awesome. Like, the parents there, a lot of them just have had different opportunities and um, struggles than we can even be aware of. But they are some awesome families, awesome kids over there. A couple of years ago, I was able to teach uh, or coach soccer with Max, the youth pastor. And one of the dads there, he was um, a migrant worker. And he came to me at the end of the game and he said, I work seven days a week, but I make sure every Saturday I am here for my son's game. And that's awesome to me. That's the families that we have over here in Stocking. And so people have asked me all the time, why do you go to a school where you can't even proclaim Jesus? You can't, we have separation of church and state. There's laws, rules by that. There was a Rolling Stone article about six months ago. It was about Betsy DeVos becoming the new Secretary of Education. And it was saying like the holy war on public schools, it was called. And I'm not getting into all that part, but this article was really talking about what's the role, what are churches doing in schools? How is this working? And so being that Betsy DeVos is from West Michigan, the person that wrote this article for Rolling Stone came to West Michigan. They got connected with a teacher over at Stocking, actually. And so they ended up talking to this teacher at Stocking. Well, out of all the teachers at Stocking they talked to, there is one atheist. And who do you think they talked to? The atheist. I met. He's a great guy, just... Confused. Anyway, I really. Um, and so they interviewed him for this article and someone told me, you got to read this article. And I was thinking, oh no. What is he going to say? What are we doing? What, I'm sure he's just going to bring up all this dirt that he doesn't like that we're doing. And his quote was this. One church bought every child at my school a winter coat, a hat, and gloves. Now I'm an atheist. I don't think the churches belong in the school. At the same time, This teacher admits we can't educate kids that are starving or don't have clothes. And when you hear that, my heart is maybe that's bringing this atheist teacher one step closer to Jesus by us being there. And what I want to emphasize is it's not about what we're doing. It's about us being there in those places. If we just pull out and say, no, we can't go there, we can't do that, then God's presence is lacking there. God's people cannot be built up. We can't build God's church in those areas. And what I love is the example of Jesus. Jesus is so countercultural. As a rabbi, the the disciples, they're supposed to come to you and ask to follow you. What does Jesus do? He goes to where they're at. He goes down by the, the water. He calls those fishermen out. He says, come and follow me. He sees people at the tax collector. Was it Matthew? I think he sees him there. He says, come and follow me. He finds people where they're at. He goes into those places. He doesn't wait for people to come to us. When Jesus says, I will build my church, he's not talking about a structure or a place or a time of the week. He's talking about a people. He's raising up a people to go and build a kingdom of priests, But we need to remember this, as we go into these broken places of the world and these chaotic places of the world, who is our enemy? He doesn't say, we're going to shake the gates of Caesarea Philippi, we're going to shake the gates of the synagogue rulers, we're going to shake the gates of hell. And that's what we need to remember. Ephesians 6.12, our battle is not against flesh and blood. 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God? These are people that are living in darkness and confusion. They don't know. They don't see. But how often is it, you have different political views than me? Boom, you're out. You have different ethnic views than me? Whatever. Boom, you're out. You think this way? You're out. Or we see people as the enemy. We've got to remember, they are not the enemy. They are blinded by the God of this age. And we need to engage with them. We are the ones that engage with them. Don't throw them off because God hasn't quit on us. We've all been in that place. God was the one that had to open our own eyes, so don't quit on people as well. Satan is the one that embodies and incites chaos in this world, and that's what we need to remember. So what do we do with this? In this body, there are so many different people, many different giftings, passions, and I love it. To be able to unleash these passions, those giftings in Grand Rapids, would have radical implications, but not only to release individuals, but also communities of people to step into the city. I love that Jesus always sent his disciples out by two. I know when we try to do things sometimes on our own, it can be so difficult. You can feel daunting, just like, I cannot do this. Get burnt out, overwhelmed. Something that I heard a few years ago that's stuck with me so often is forming community around mission. And what does that mean? What does a community on mission look like? A couple months ago, I was able to meet a guy, his name is Tim, he's from Florida, he has a passion for football, and he also has a passion for his city in Tampa, and so Tim and a couple of his buddies were like, you know what, we love football, and we want to share Jesus with people in this city, let's join this flag football league. So these guys go, and they start joining and playing in this flag football league, and every week after the end of their flag football league, everyone just goes to the bar and hangs out and everything. So these guys go, but what do they do? They start just asking questions, talking about Jesus, being an example of Jesus to these guys. Before you know it, a few of these guys get saved. They come to know Jesus. So now they have this thing on Wednesday nights, it's called called Beer and Bibles, where people are wrestling with the text. They're going through the Bible. They're talking about these things. They're wrestling with life issues and how do we do this. There's been three more of these little clubs, whatever, micro-churches that have been planted in different bars. And do you know what? The bar people love it. They're saying, this is what we need. We need more people like you doing this, bringing this, this message here. That's what it can look like here. I know there's people here. There's Carly Stender who's formed some women around a jail ministry, like people that have like callings, like passion, saying how do we start to get into the jails and form community around that? I know there's people serving on the southeast side, with Donnie, serving the kids down there, getting involved and engaged. Sometimes it's just asking, what am I passionate about? And what, is the God, what are the things that God has put on my heart? One of my, someone that I feel like is a mentor to me, Floyd McClung, he always said, what are you passionate about and how can you use that to plant churches or build a church of people, a gathering of people? Maybe your heart's for the fatherless, single moms, foreigners, the marginalized. The list can be endless, And I guarantee that there's probably at least one other person in this room that has a similar heart that can go with you into that mission. My heart is that when we feel disconnected, even in this community, saying, man, it's so big, how do you get connected? What if the question was, what do you feel called to? What do you feel passionate about? You feel passionate about the the high school kids? Hey, here's a group of people we want to connect you with. Connecting people to go and be this, this body of believers into the brokenness of the world. So what holds us back? Too often we disqualify ourselves. We say, do you know what? I don't know how to enter into the brokenness of the world. I don't know how to make, know enough Bible passages. I make too many mistakes. I just don't have it all together. I don't know how to relate to anyone that's even different than me. Can I tell you this? Is We will never be perfect. And I think that's awesome because we're not supposed to be perfect. It's awesome when we fail because when we are seeking and pursuing God... I believe there isn't failure in the kingdom of God. It's just a place that God grows us and deepens our understanding of who he is and who we are in him. It can be a trap in the Christian world for us to think, if I'm gonna do ministry or step into the brokenness of the world, I have to have it all together. I need to make sure I know how to do everything. But then we become the savior with the small s and we minimize the one who is the true savior, who's Jesus. When we enter in to the brokenness of this world, and we enter in in our humanness and weakness, we point the world to the one who truly does bring peace and wholeness, to the one that truly is their Savior. So right after Peter makes this confession of faith, you think Peter's got it going for him? The next verse, Jesus says he's going to suffer and die at the hands of the religious leaders. And, And what is Peter doing? He's like, no, that can never happen to you, Jesus. That can't happen to you. Jesus is like, get behind me. You have the things of man in mind, not the things of my kingdom. So even when we're on this journey, we're still going to blow it. We're going to make mistakes, but we're still learning and growing because God does not quit on us. The last part of this talks about the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What we bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and what we loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. My brief takeaway from this is that maybe our actions and what we do in this life matter and have implications far beyond what we even realize. I just recently saw a quote by Dallas Willard and it says the gospel is less about how to get into the kingdom of heaven after you die and more about how to live in the kingdom of heaven before you die. As may we look upon Jesus who cuts through all the chaos and brokenness of the world, the pagan the religious, whatever it is, and he establishes his kingdom, his church, his bride, which isn't a place or building, but rather is a people, and I hope that we can see this Jesus and the fullness of who he is and what he's done for us, and in turn, we can say yes to him and join him in his mission, building his church and bringing his peace into chaos in this world. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for the joy and the privilege it is to serve you, to partner with you, God. I thank you so much for the ways that you have entered into our own brokenness, our own chaos, and that we can confess you as Lord, we can confess you as Messiah. And I thank you that it doesn't end there, Lord, but that you call us now to be a part of your kingdom, of building your kingdom in this world So we love you, God. We bless you. We just say, Lord, have your way in us. Use us for your name and your glory, for you are worthy of it all. In Jesus' name. My heart is that as we go from here, you will receive and that we as a community will walk in this blessing, this identity of who we are in Christ. In 1 Peter 2, receive this, it says, but you, you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you did not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. Go in peace. Have a great week.